you'll take your copy of scripture and turn the book of Jude. We're going to continue in our series. And we left off last week trying to give hope. Give hope in a world that seems hopeless. Give light in a world that seems so dark. And I want to continue in that today because here's the thing. So many times that we think that we see all these things in the world and there really is nothing we can do about it. You ever felt that way? There's so many times that I just hear what's happening and I see what's going on and I just feel there's nothing I can do. I mean, how, how can one person deal with so many things that are going on in this world? Well, Jude gives us the answer to that. Jude tells us that there are, there are gifts that we've been given by God. There are truths that we can build our life and our eternity on. There's, there's power that's been given to us through the Holy Spirit that we can stand firm and make change in this dark world. There's a verse that I love. Uh, it's in Romans. It's Romans 12, 20. It says, do not, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, for some reason, we don't seem to really take heart to that verse. Here's what he says. Do not be overcome by evil as if we have something to do about that because we do. And what we can do about that is to live in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome evil by the good things that we do. Here's what I want to give you today and what we're going to see in the book of Jude, that God has tasked each one of us, you and me, with a mission. And here's that mission, to be good and to do good in this world. Because when we do, we are actually overcoming evil. The greatest way to fight evil is not match evil with evil. The greatest way to fight evil is to match evil with good. And I'm not just talking about a general, you know, be kind, be nice, don't be a jerk. And that's good advice for all of us. What I'm talking about is to be so transformed by Jesus that his goodness comes out of you into this world. And we fight evil with his goodness. Listen to what Jude has to say. We're going to look at verse 17. Uh, we're going to start there today. This is after he's talked about what the world looks like and how it's dark and it's dangerous and it's all these kind of things. Here's what he says. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, uh, in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, I've told you several times throughout this series that uh, Jude talks about remembering the apostles' teaching. And, and he means that. In fact, one of the things that I love about this is that Jude doesn't say, remember my teaching. He doesn't say, I have authority, I have power. And listen, if anybody had authority, if anybody had a standing to say anything, it was Jude. Jude's brother was Jesus. Think about what he could appeal to. You need to listen to me because I am Jesus' brother. Pretty powerful authority, right? It's not what he does. He says, listen, remember the apostles' teaching. Remember what God said. Don't remember what I said. Remember what God said. And he says, listen. This is what God has said to you through the apostles. 
Now, again, I've talked about anchoring ourselves in God's word, but here's something that I missed. When he says, remember the apostles teaching, everything that comes after this that we're gonna talk about today is the apostles teaching. He's reminding them of what they've been told through God's people, through God's word. And he says, listen, I just want to remind you of what's been said before so that you can live in hope, you can live in faith, you can live in purity, you can live in power. What I'm saying isn't anything new. And so we need to remember. So what did the apostles tell the people? They told you that mockers would come. Look at the first thing he says, but you beloved. Now I love that term beloved. I like to use that a lot because it means one who I love. And I want you to hear what Jude is saying. Listen, ones who I love. I want you to remember what the apostles have said. And I want you to live in that because they love you too. I want you to remember this and live by what's been said because God loves you. Not only are we beloved by Jude and beloved by the apostles, we're beloved by God. And so here's what he's saying. Everything that I'm about to remind you of should remind you that God loves you. And this is the plan that he has for your life. Remember what they told you. He says, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. Here's what he's saying. Be ready, be ready, be ready because there are gonna be people in every age, every generation, every church who are trying to lead us astray. Don't be surprised by that. Jesus said it, Paul said it, Luke said it, Jude's saying it, Peter said it. I mean, if you go through the New Testament, we just see time after time and place after place, they say, listen, there are gonna be people who come who pretend to be one of us and are not, and they're leading us astray. Be ready for it. And here's the sad reality, we're not. We're not ready for it. And what happens when it happens to us or it happens in our church or it happens in Christianity, we're devastated. Listen, I, I've had this happen to me personally. I was serving in my home church as an intern for several years after I surrendered to ministry. We had a worship pastor who I adored. Uh, he was a mentor to me. He was helping me through a lot of problems that I was having during seminary. And I was going back to seminary and I got a phone call that he had been fired from our church because he'd been having a, a multiple year affair. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it because the guy that I knew and the guy that I spent time with would never do that. Here's the reality. He did. Not only did he do it, he denied doing it and he left the church, divorced his wife, married this other person and still lives in that place. I was rocked. I was rocked. I was devastated. I mean, I really began to question my faith and I had a wonderful pastor come to me. He said, listen, Michael, this doesn't change who Jesus is. This doesn't change what Jesus has done. And this doesn't change who the church should be. Did that guy mess up? Sure. But that doesn't change Jesus. A couple of years back, I had a guy who I adored and looked up to and really have used a lot of his materials in my ministry. A guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. After Ravi died, 
all this information began to come out and really he was a horrible human being. He mistreated and abused women all over the world. He used his position in the church and his power as a speaker and his authority as a man of God to damage and abuse people. And I was shocked. I was devastated. I began to see things like this. Well, if, if he could do this, then what about all the things that he taught us? Is it wrong? I mean, if he could live a double life like this, isn't Christianity really meaningless and worthless? Here's what Jude says. Remember. Remember what you've heard. Remember what you've heard from Jesus and what you've heard from the apostles and what you're hearing from me. We have told you there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. There will be people who come who completely deny the truth, who misuse grace and they deny Jesus. But God is still real. God is still on his throne. And what we believe in is not a person a pastor, a, pro, a prophet, or apostle, uh, an apologist. What we believe is the truth. And so here's the thing. We need to be ready. Because I'm sure many of you in here have been let down by somebody in the church. I'm sure you've been devastated by somebody that you've looked up to and thought this person is close, as close to God as Abraham was or Moses was. I mean, these, these people are on another spiritual level than I am. And then they fall and you're crushed. Here's what Jude is trying to tell us. We have to be very careful in who we put our faith in. Here's what I tell churches all the time. You've probably heard me say this here. If you put me on a pedestal, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to fall and I'm going to fall on you and I'm going to hurt me and hurt you. I'm human. I wish I could say I'm perfect, but I'm not. Here's what Jude is trying to say. You put Jesus on the pedestal of your life and he will never fall and he will never hurt you and he will never let you down. So here's what Jude is saying. Listen, remember, remember that is what, had, what is happening in your life right now, what is happening in your church right now, we told you was coming. Be ready. And so guys, listen, here's the way that you get ready. Here's the way that you overcome evil with good. You put your trust in Jesus and not the church. You put your faith in Jesus, not in me. You put your faith in Jesus and not the programs that we have in this building. You put your faith in Jesus and him alone and you will be ready. He says, I want you to remember the words that were spoken to you by the apostles. They told you to build yourself up in your most holy faith. Verse 20, but you, beloved, there that word is again, but you that I love so dearly, build yourself up on your most holy faith. Here's what they're telling us, to be rooted and built up and grounded in Christ. Colossians 2.7. Now this may sound controversial, but I hope it's not. My faith is not being in being a Southern Baptist. My security is not being a part of the church. What my security comes from is I am rooted and grounded and being built up in Jesus. And that's what you need to do. Your faith and the way you live your life, yes, being a Southern Baptist is good. Yes, being a part of the church is great. Yes, all these things are wonderful, but they don't replace Jesus. 
And listen, if you want to grow, the fastest way to grow, the most sure way to grow is root yourself in Jesus. Here's what that means. I do not trust my works. I do not trust religious rituals. I do not trust membership in a church. I do not trust baptism and all those things are good. What I trust that saves me is I stand on the solid ground of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When God asked me, why should I let you into heaven? I'll say, Jesus died for me. He paid for my sin. He forgave me, made me new, and I am trusting in him and him alone. I have nothing except him. Be rooted and grounded and built up in Jesus. He says, build yourself up in your most holy faith. And once you take that, then the next step is to make every effort to let faith change you. We talked about this a few weeks ago on our 90th anniversary in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. We went through the whole list of how he wants to make every effort, make every effort, make every effort. To let faith get into every area of our life. So we root ourselves in Jesus, we ground ourselves in Jesus, we build ourselves up in Jesus. And the way that we do that is we allow his life, we allow his death, we allow his resurrection and his words to get into us and begin to work its way through all of us. And that's what we do. Make every effort to let faith change you. That's where we open every place of our life every place in our heart, every place in our mind. We, uh, we give to Jesus all the things that we don't even want to think about. We give Jesus full and free permission to do whatever he wants to in our life. If he needs to change us, he'll change us. If he needs to forgive us, he'll forgive us. And if he needs to cleanse us, he'll cleanse us. If he needs to discipline us. I know we don't like that. As a kid who got in trouble all the time, I was best friends with my elementary school and middle school pastors, I mean, uh, principals. Not because I enjoyed their friendship, because I spent a lot of time in their office. A lot of time. You know, my, my middle school principal, like he had it set on his watch. Well, it's 1030, Michael's not here yet, so we might be having a good day. Discipline, we think is a bad thing. But when Jesus disciplines, he always does it for our good and for his glory. Think about the places in your life that Jesus has brought discipline and changed you and transformed you. There's an aspect that you don't think about. He changes you, he transforms you. And we're like, yes, I'm so thankful that I don't do these things anymore. But here's the thing we miss. It's for his glory. When people look at us and say, why don't you do that anymore? Why aren't you like that anymore? Here's what we get to say, because Jesus changed me. Jesus changed me. And I feel like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, I am an I'm a, I'm a example of God's grace. If he can transform me, he can transform you. He tells us that we need to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus. 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace of and the knowledge of Jesus. This is where we come to understand <clears throat> why grace is so vital and so important in our relationship to Jesus. It's where we come to understand that knowledge isn't about the stuff that you put into your head, it's what goes into your heart and shows up in your life. It's where we begin to believe the things about well, who God says he is and what God says he has done, we begin to believe that 
and rest in that and live in that. And all of a sudden that grace and that knowledge flows out of us to other people. He wants you to grow in grace. I had a professor explain this to me and I didn't get it. We were talking about this in a seminary class and he said, class, and he was an older professor. I loved him dearly. He said, class, when I started in ministry, I was much more confident and much less assured. And what that means, he was very confident in what he knew and he was very confident in how to live and he was very confident in how to minister, but he didn't have assurance. He didn't have that assurance that he was right with God, that he was settled with God. He was doing what God wanted him to do. So he was confident, but not really assured. He said, now that I've lived as a Christian for many, many years, and now that I've been in ministry for many, many years, he said, I'm much less confident and much more assured. Here's what he meant. He began to realize that his confidence was keeping him from a deep, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. He recognized that he was so confident about what he knew, he never asked Jesus whether what he knew was really right. He was so confident in how to be a pastor that he never really asked Jesus, is this what you want me to do? Is this how you want me to live? And throughout the years, he began to realize that his assurance, his security didn't come in his confidence. It came in his relationship. The deeper his relationship got with Jesus, the more assurance that he has. So here's something for you. If you're struggling in your relationship with Jesus, maybe your confidence of something in your life is keeping you from assurance. There was a a day early on in my ministry, I'd come out of seminary, I got the stamp of approval, I got my master's degree. And I I was sealed and approved. And I knew everything as anybody right out of college and graduate school does, right? And I I was confident. I had every answer for every question. I was confident. I had the skills to face anything that I was going to face. And I get into ministry and I realize that's wrong. There's a lot of things they didn't teach us in seminary. But I remember one day I was leaving the hospital. Felt like I had completely botched that visit with that person. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I barely could get a prayer out. And I get in my car and I said, God, I think I need to quit. And in my heart, I began to feel like, hey, we're getting somewhere. I finally stopped trusting in my confidence. And I poured myself out before the Lord. And here's what I said. I don't know what I'm doing. And he wholeheartedly agreed. But here's the thing. He agreed and he changed me. The more that I turned myself over and said, God, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to say here. I don't know what to pray here. I don't know how to love here. I don't know what to do. Here's the amazing thing. Every time I prayed that prayer, the Holy Spirit showed up and he did it for me. Now, here's the hard thing. People began to say, Michael, we we just love what you're doing. We're so thankful this and so thankful that. And I'm like, I had nothing to do with it. Holy Spirit did. Anything that I am today, any talent or skill I may have, which I don't have a lot, all of it comes from him. All of it comes from him and me just saying, God, I don't know what to do. So he does it for me. 
grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. They told you to build up your faith and sometimes we feel stuck and sometimes we feel less than what we should be. Sometimes we worry we're not gonna make it. Sometimes we just look at our life and think we're a failure. Here's something you need to remember to build yourself up. Be confident that God will complete his work in you. Philippians 1.6. Paul said, I am very confident of this one thing, that God who began a work in me and a God who began a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jude is trying to tell us. Here's what Paul's trying to tell us. Here's what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, that God is at work in you. You're God's project. And I don't know if you understand this, but all the projects that God works on, he finishes and he does it very well. You're going to make it. You're going to glorify him. You're going to honor him. And one day when you stand before Jesus and you look him in the face, you will look just like Jesus. That excites the mess out of me. That there'll be a day when I'm finally not a bonehead. There will be a day when there, I will finally not sin. There'll be a day when I finally won't grieve over the mistakes that I've made. There'll be a day when I stand complete before Jesus and everything in my life radiates him. They told you, they told you to keep yourself in the love of God. Oh, skipped one. They told you to pray in the Holy Spirit. But you, beloved, building up yourselves on most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Listen, they've told us. Jesus has told us. The apostles, the disciples have told us. The churches have told us to pray. And not just to spout out words, but to pray in the Holy Spirit. And we think that that's a skill that you develop. You think that that's a, a trait that you can have. Here's the reality. In Romans 8.26, it tells us that God has given us the spirit and the spirit takes the stuff so deep inside of us that we don't even know what they are. He takes those things, those groanings, those longings and those things, he interprets them and prays to God for us on our behalf. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When we don't know what to pray, when we just have these feelings and we don't know what to do with them, the Holy Spirit gets down deep and he takes those things out. He interprets them to God and says, here is their prayer. Listen, we need to have every confidence that when we pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. Now here's the deal. If you have those two guys praying for you, don't you think you should have confidence to pray for yourself and to pray for other people? Listen, it is God's will for you to pray continually without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18. This is God's will for you that you pray without ceasing. Now, can I just stand in front of you and tell you that that's not what I do? I'm gonna be honest because here's the reality. I'm in a room full of people that don't do that. And we feel guilty. And what happens when we feel guilty, what do we do? We pray even less. And then we feel even more guilty and we pray even less. It is a wonderful trick of our enemy to tell us that because we didn't pray today that God's gonna punish us and because we didn't pray today, God's gonna remove his blessings from us and because we didn't pray today, God is gonna bring all sorts of nasty circumstances to our life to show us that we better pray. 
And that our Father, who is good and loving and kind, will not listen to us unless we pray every day in a certain way, at a certain time, with certain things. And here's the reality. Our Father listens to our prayers all the time. And not only does he listen to our prayers, but he answers them. And here's the confidence that we need. That we can pray with confidence. Matthew 7, 11, Hebrews 4, 16, and 1 John 5, 14. Hebrews 4, 16 tells us that we, with confidence or boldness, should enter into the throne room of God and ask for help in our time of need and ask for grace in our time of need. Do you understand what that means? That God says we have access to his very presence, his very throne room, and we go in and we can ask for what we need. 1 John 5.14 says this, that we need to have confidence to know that when we ask our father anything, we should have the confidence that he's going to answer. Do you pray that way? Do you believe that? I struggle with that a lot. Here's the reason why. Because I know myself and I know what I say and I know what I think and I know what I feel and I know what I do and I think, well, <laughs> I'm pretty messed up. And I'm sure God's just gonna be like, nah, Michael, we're not gonna do, we're not gonna do that. Here's the confidence that we need to have. Not only does he hear our prayers, not only does he answer our prayers, but listen to this. That prayer is powerful and effective. James 5, 16. James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray to one another. And if someone's sick and needs healing, that the church comes and prays for them. And here's what it says. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now you think, well, there's my loophole. I'm not righteous. No loophole. If you are in Jesus Christ today, you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach, you are righteous in his sight. Not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done for you. And so here's the deal. You don't need, you know, some prayer warrior. You don't need somebody who's determined themselves to be that way. You have every right, you have every authority to pray to your father and pray for other people because you are righteous in his sight. And when you pray, it's powerful and effective. How would it change the way that we pray in our prayer life if we believe God heard us and God answered and that our prayers are powerful and effective? It would stop me from saying stupid things like this. Well, I've had a bad week this week. I probably shouldn't pray about that because God's not gonna listen. Whew, I, I need to find somebody that has the spiritual gift of prayer. Let me tell you who has the spiritual, spiritual gift of prayer. Anybody who believes in Jesus Christ, you have the spiritual gift of prayer. Not only do you have the power, the, the power of the spiritual gift of prayer, you also have the very spirit himself who gives us prayers, who lives inside of you, who's praying for you. They told us, they told you to keep yourself in the love of God. Verse 21, keeping yourselves in the love of God. What does this mean? That sounds scary, doesn't it? Keep yourself in the love of God. What happens if you don't keep yourself? Are you out of the love of God? Can I say by the authority of the Holy Spirit, by the authority of God's word, by the authority of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you do not keep yourself in the love of God, Christ does. 
And you don't believe me? Let's look in Jude itself and see what Jude says. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You do not keep yourself in the love of God. Christ keeps you in his love by his love. So what does this mean? Keeping ourselves in the love of God means keeping the love of Christ in our heart and allowing that love to show up in our life. Basically what Judah's saying this, remember Jesus told you, remember Paul told you, remember Matthew told you, remember all the apostles told you that the way that we overcome evil with good is to express the love that Jesus gave to us. How do we do that? Well, Paul tells us that love is the greatest spiritual gift. You ever heard that? 1 Corinthians 13, there are three that remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of all these is love. What, more powerful than faith? More powerful than hope? Yeah, it's love. Why? Because without love, the love of God in our hearts that's been poured out on us, the love of God, the love of Christ that's been showered on us by the cross, everything that we do is worthless. He says in 1 Corinthians verses one through three, if I have the gift of speaking in tongues and understanding mysteries of the Bible, but I do it without love, it's nothing. It's just words. If I can give away all my possessions and give my body to be burned, it's worthless. In fact, he goes on to say, if we do all of these things without love, we have nothing and we are nothing. Love is the greatest spiritual gift. Why? Because it fuels all other spiritual gifts. How bad would it be for me to get up here every week and share the truth of God's word with you without love? I would just be up here yelling at you and ranting at you and talking about how you're messing up and you're failing and you're not doing enough. Speak the truth in love. Love is the greatest spiritual gift. He tells us to love others like Jesus loves you. John 13, 34. I'm giving you a new commandment, which is not really a new commandment. You are to love others as Christ has loved you. And how has Jesus loved us? He loved us first. He loves us when we are horrible and sinners and we rebel against, he loves us. He gives us good things. He blesses us. He draws them to himself. He reconciles us. He, he comes and fixes the relationship. Doesn't ask us to do that. He extends grace and mercy and forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. And then here's what we do. We receive the love of Jesus and withhold it from other people. You made your bed. You got to lie in it. This is all your fault. We're not helping you till you clean yourself up. We will never love a person like you. Listen, when we say those things and we believe those things and we live those things, we are actually living as the Antichrist. We are living opposite to who Jesus is and what he's done. 
Love proves that you are his disciple. John 13, 35. All the world will know that you are my, my disciple by the way that you love others. This should be shocking to you because everything that we do to pr prove ourselves to be disciples isn't this. We think all the world will know that we are his disciples by what we know. All the world will know we are his disciples by what church we go to. All the world will know we are his disciples by the people that we hate and the people that we fight against and the people that we exclude. Listen to Jesus, his words, not mine. All the world you will know that you are my disciple by the way that you love others. And I'm not saying that knowledge and learning and understanding and being part of a church is bad. It's just not the way that people will know. But that's what we do. We say, I'm a deacon. I'm a teacher. I'm a this, I'm a that. Great. I'm glad you do all those things, but do you do them in love? Do you do them in Jesus's love? I serve you because I love you and I love you because Jesus has loved me and the love that I'm giving to you, he gave to me first and I wanna give it to you. Love has to be an action and not merely words. First John 3.18 tells us, listen, John says, loved ones, beloved, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. He says, if you have food and you have warmth and you have the things that people need and you withhold them and tell them, go be warm, go be well-fed, have a nice day, where's your love? It's super easy to say, I love you to someone, isn't it? It's just three little words. I love you. Saying I love you doesn't mean as much as showing I love you. Heather and I celebrated our 17th anniversary yesterday. And I think our marriage would be very, very different if all I ever said to her was, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. And then did nothing to show her. I think after 17 years, she might wonder if I really loved her. She might wonder where my commitment and my loyalty and my passion resides if all I ever say is I love you and I never show I love you. And guys, here's the serious truth. For generations, the church has said, I love you and not shown I love you. It's very easy for us to say that we love the lost and dying world. And then the problem is we don't go into the lost and dying world and show it. Loving others is how we love Jesus. Again, I didn't say this, Jesus did. In Matthew 24, we have the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says when he comes, he's gonna separate the world into two categories, sheep and goats. And you can probably imagine that people in Matthew are like, well, how do we know? How are we gonna know who's who? He says, super easy. The people that are the sheep, they fed the hungry, they helped the sick. They visited people in jail. They took care of people. They gave a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And the sheep said, well, Jesus, when, when did we do that? When did, when did we do all these things? He says, the, the thing that you do to the least of these, you do to me. Jesus said, listen, you went about your daily life and you loved people the way that I loved you. And that shows that you're a sheep. And the goats kind of get upset and say, well, when didn't we do that? 
we prophesied for you, we preached for you, we did all these things for you. He said, yeah, but you didn't love. When you withheld my love to the people who need it the most, you did that to me. If you don't love, you don't know God. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 and 1 John 4, 20 through 21. How can you love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? Behold, God is love. And if anyone claims to know God, he must love others as well. They told you to wait anxiously for the mercy of Jesus to eternal life. We are called to wait. Nobody likes to wait. It makes us angry to wait. It's because we misunderstand. We are called to wait, but we are called to wait in service. That our lives are full of doing things for God and doing things for other people, expressing the love that he's given to us. And we just have to wait till he comes back. But here's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for our redeemer. We're waiting for our creator. We're waiting for our God to show back up in earth and take us to be with him. We're called to wait. And in our waiting, here's what he says, be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Jesus. 2 Peter 3.14. Our waiting comprises of doing everything that we can in our life to let Jesus be who he is and the Holy Spirit to work in our life to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Here's what that means. That when Jesus shows up, there has been a noticeable transformation in your life from the moment you accepted Christ to wherever he finds you. Not perfection, transformation. And he says in your waiting, you're sharing the gospel so the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. If there's anything that we can do that's good that will overcome evil, it's sharing the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that you will share the gospel into all the world and then the end will come. Listen, I want Jesus to come back. In fact, it would be awesome if he came back right now and the sermon just ended. It'd be fantastic. And I know you're saying, amen, let's go home. Here's the thing. We want Jesus to come back. Jesus himself said, if you want the end to come and you want the end to come quickly, share the gospel. Share the gospel. Because when we share the gospel and the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, the end will come. They told you to have mercy. They added to the golden rule. Jesus says to treat others the way that you want them to treat you. Well, when it says to have mercy, it means that we are to treat others the way Jesus has treated you. We are to treat others the way Jesus has treated you. And we have mercy. What, what does that mean? What does it look like to have mercy? Well, he gives us three categories that kind of encompass all people. We have mercy for doubters. We have mercy for people in the faith that are struggling in their faith, that have questions about their faith. And so we do what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.15, that we are prepared to give an answer when they ask you, why do you have hope? Why do you have peace? Why do you have joy? And say, well, let me tell you. Thank you for asking. And let me tell you, 
The reason I have hope, the reason I have joy, the reason I have peace in my life is because I know Jesus and Jesus has forgiven me and he's made me new. And Jesus is guaranteed that I'm gonna be with him forever. He's preparing a place for me in his home forever. And I, I have hope and peace and joy because I know Jesus and I know Jesus wins. We don't condemn them. We give them answers. We have mercy for the lost. It's so difficult sometimes for us to look past all the things that people who don't know Jesus are caught up in. And we need to remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He says that all the people who are lost have been blinded by Satan. They've been deceived by Satan. Because they can't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They don't see Jesus the way that we do. They're blinded. And it's our job through the Holy Spirit to rip the blindfold off. To tell them about the goodness and the grace and the love and forgiveness of Jesus so that the, light, the blindfold can be taken off and the light of God can shine in their life and they be saved. We have mercy for those who are caught in sins. We step in to people's lives who are broken and hurting. And we say what Paul said in Galatians. We step in and say, hey, let me, let me carry this burden with you. Let me, let me come alongside you and I'll put my arm around you and we're gonna share the load. I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna walk with you so that you can be restored. Too often, and you've heard this phrase, too often what we do in the church is we kick people while, we're, while they're down. We shoot our wounded. And here's what you say, you need to have mercy. I want you to think about the people that have come into your life at the worst times of your life and had mercy on you. I won't tell this whole story, but you've heard me tell it before. I had this happen in seminary. I had been addicted to pornography for so many years. And God allowed me to share that with the church congregation. And the moments after I shared that, I was worried, okay, this is where everything ends. This is where my seminary career ends. This is where my ministry ends. Everything is over. And the opposite happened. Every one of those people lined up and came to me and hugged me and wept with me and forgave me and said, we are here with you. And they brought accountability in my life. And because they did that, the Holy Spirit was able to work through me to overcome that addiction and set me free. I shudder sometimes to think where I would be right now if God's people had not done what God's people were supposed to do. Let me tell you where I'd be. I wouldn't be in church. I wouldn't be in ministry. I'd be off somewhere angry at God and angry at the church and I'd just be gone. Listen, God has given you a mission. He's given you a mission to overcome evil with good. And the power that he's given you through the Holy Spirit conquers everything. So here's my challenge today. Find something in there. Really search your heart and say, God, is there something on that list that Jude's reminding of us of that I need to work on, that you need to work on in my life? If there is, go at it. I surrender. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, the power to live in victory. 
And God, I pray today that it would be victory that people would find, that they would recognize that you've given us everything that we need to live for you and to overcome evil with good. And so God, help us say yes. Help us to get over our pride, to say yes, that we need you, that we are a sinner and we are desperate to be your child. Help us to say yes, to turn over all of our sin and just repent and confess and be made new in you. Help us to say yes and become a part of your family and love you by loving and serving these people here in this church, in this community, in this state, and all over the world. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.